You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is... Episode 123 of Season 3, Episode 188 of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today is August 11th, 2021. Today we're going to talk about A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood, The Bible and the American Civil War by James P. Byrd, a book I finished here a couple of days ago. I didn't finish it yesterday. I usually like to do a podcast book review of a book the day after when everything is as fresh as possible. But in this case, I think it was for the best that I didn't do a review of Bird's book, Bird's exploration of this topic right away. I think it was good that I had uh, a couple of days intervening to really turn this over in my head because it's, to put it very briefly, complicated. This is complicated. Long and short of it, I'll start off reading publisher's summary here on Audible. I listened to this book on audiobook while I was driving back and forth for work. And it took me a a little bit just because I was trying to turn these things over in my head. I'm reading other books at the same time. But I'll read for you the publisher's summary and then we'll talk a little bit about the implications. In his second inaugural address, delivered as the nation was in the throes of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln proclaimed that both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. The Bible was frequently wielded as a weapon in support of both North and South. As James P. Byrd reveals in his insightful narrative, no book was more important to the Civil War than the Bible. From Massachusetts to Mississippi and beyond, the Bible was the nation's most read and respected book. It presented a drama of salvation and damnation, of providence and judgment, of sacred history and sacrifice. When Americans argued over the issues that divided them, slavery, secession, patriotism, authority, white supremacy, and violence, the Bible was the book they most often invoked. Soldiers fought the Civil War with Bibles in hand, and both sides called the war just and sacred. In Scripture, both Union and Confederate soldiers found inspiration for dying and for killing on a scale never before seen in the nation's history. With approximately 750,000 fatalities, the Civil War was the deadliest of the nation's wars, leading many to turn to the Bible, not just to fight, but to deal with its inevitable trauma. A fascinating overview of religious and military conflict, a holy baptism of fire and blood draws on an astonishing array of sources to demonstrate the many ways that Americans enlisted the Bible in the nation's bloodiest and arguably most biblically saturated conflict. Now, I want to talk a little bit also about, very briefly, some other books that are very similar that I would recommend if you read this book Don't just read this book. Read more than just this book to get an understanding of the Civil War and its implications for our doctrine. 
consider The Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark A. Knoll as being a companion to this book. And also Black and Tan, a collection of essays and excursions on slavery, culture, war, and scripture in America by Doug Wilson. Both of those in conjunction with this book by James P. Bird, very helpful. Another book I would recommend is The Democratization of American Christianity by Nathan O'Hatch, dealing more broadly with American history and trends, if you will, in our evangelical Christian uh, expressions and the evolution of Christianity as expressed in public, as expressed in the mainstream over the course of our country's history, pre-Declaration of Independence and also, of course, post-Declaration of Independence. But getting into James P. Byrd's book specifically, putting those other works to the side for a second or for the next 20 minutes or so, I am struck by how often the North and the South quoted scripture in the midst of the conflict. Byrd quotes preachers and soldiers and politicians and generals and common people on both sides of this conflict all throughout the book, using the Bible sometimes in ways that are intuitive still, 150 years removed from the Civil War, and other times you groan. You, you read these quotes and the insinuations, and you have to think to yourself, if you're a student of the Bible, that this was just not good biblical application. There was a thread here that was being pulled on that maybe there was a word or two or a concept that was uh, related to what they were experiencing or what they were denouncing, but they weren't first and foremost reading the Bible for what it says and exegeting very well always. They were reading the Bible and they were eisegeting. They were reading into the text their situation and trying to get a biblical mandate to do what they wanted to do. Now, if you look at The Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark A. Knoll in conjunction with this, you understand that there was a theological conflict brewing before military conflict broke out regarding the issue of slavery. The most radical abolitionists, anti-slavery folks, when they heard arguments from Southern theologians and pastors and defenders of the institution of slavery as it was practiced in the South, in the North, they were in the North and in the South, saying the Bible makes allowances for slavery. God never prohibits slavery. God makes room for slavery in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, in the New Testament, in the epistles of Paul. The most radical abolitionists would hear that, and if they didn't have a good counter, or if they couldn't come up with a counter readily, they would just dismiss the Bible. Well, if the Bible makes room for slavery, slavery is evil, and therefore I'm going to reject the Bible because it has violated 
this supreme importance that I place in liberty, in the abstract. Liberty becomes this idol as we define it, and we're not getting our definition of human freedom and liberty as a virtue from God's word. We are getting it somewhere else, and then we are sitting in judgment of God and his word, and then rejecting. We're saying to God, you've been weighed and measured and found wanting. We're rejecting God and his goodness and the goodness of his word because it does not comport with our extra-biblical standard. And so the pro-slavery theologians and pastors and lay people in the South looked at the most radical abolitionist trend of throwing out the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. And they basically said, leading up to the Civil War and then definitely during the Civil War, that the North was being atheistic, was being godless, was making an assault on God's Word and on Christianity itself. Not because slavery was Christianity, not because slavery was all that the Bible has to say, that slavery is permissible, etc., etc., but because the most radical abolitionists were rejecting the Bible if they couldn't find support for their position, their anti-slavery abolitionist position in the Bible. Now, of course, it gets a little bit more complicated than that because there were certainly anti-slavery or abolitionist uh, arguments leveled which took into account all of the scriptures, the whole counsel of God, and said, for instance, if a pro-slavery theologian or pastor pointed out that slavery is in the Bible, that it is in the law of Moses, these more faithful abolitionist theologians and pastors and lay people primarily in the North, would point out, ah, yes, but in the law of Moses, there are restrictions placed on how you can treat a slave. There are restrictions placed on the dispensing of justice so that the slave is not treated in an inhumane way. And slavery as practiced in the American South does not observe those restrictions. You want to go as far as saying that God makes room for slavery and you don't want to get into the details because slavery as practiced in the South does not look like biblical slavery. It is not biblical slavery. You're saying God makes allowances for it, but you're refusing to admit that God places restrictions as a society. Now, what's interesting is Doug Wilson talks about this at length in his book, Black and Tan, which is a repackaging, republishing of a number of essays that he wrote years and years ago, which got him into hot water because he was accused of being a neo-Confederate and defending slavery and wanting the South to rise again and all this nonsense. And going back, his co-author, Steve Wilkins, had made some errors and had... Uh, basically invited some of this scorn that came in, not just from Christians, but primarily from people on the left, uh, people that were not Christians, who were godless, who 
just don't want Christians to be writing on these things and weighing in on these things at all, however they come down on them. And so Doug Wilson republishes Black and Tan, and one of the things that he points out is that you had individual slave owners who certainly did, on a case-by-case basis, look at the restrictions that God places on slavery, the commands he gives to masters in the Old Testament. And these individual slave owners in the South looked at those and were convicted, and they did abide by those restrictions. And they did practice slavery in a biblical way to the best of their abilities out of conviction. But by and large, you can't say that the American South practiced slavery in a biblical way. And that's what the abolitionists in the North primarily, to a lesser extent in the South, who did not throw out the authority and sufficiency and the inerrancy of Scripture while campaigning for an end to slavery in the South concluded. And that's how they responded. Now, what was the response from theologians and pastors in the South or in the pro-slavery camp? Crickets. Because they didn't have anything really to answer that with. It was true. And yet, what ends up happening with the Civil War, and you, you find this out in James P. Byrd's book, is you have not just a sense of honor in the South, you have an arrogant pride, a conceit on the part of the Southern plantation society, which as Abraham Lincoln is elected to the presidency, is stoked into a conflagration. Just like dueling used to be a thing, and when someone felt that their honor had been impugned, insulted by the remark or action of someone else, they would send a challenge, invite them to duel the next morning, pistols at dawn. The Society of the South, on the election of Abraham Lincoln as a Republican, as an abolitionist, threw down the gauntlet and challenged the North to a duel, more or less. Seceding from the Union on these terms, for these reasons, was conceded. Now, the flip side is, however much we can conclude, I think rightly, I agree with everyone who says that the Civil War was judgment. It was God's providential judgment on the American South for its sins. Not just the sin of slavery, but there's an earlier sin which precedes slavery, which really does have to do with the way we handle Scripture. What is it that Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament? Study to show yourself an approved workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not be ashamed. The American South was filled with workmen who should have been ashamed if they had had the good sense and weren't so puffed up and proud and selfish 
they would have had the good sense to be ashamed at their handling of the word of truth. As far as they went with slavery, for instance, they were correct. Yes, I agree. The Bible does make room for slavery. Slavery is not categorically evil. If we say otherwise, then we are in the same position as the most radical abolitionists who threw out the sufficiency, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. Because God does make allowances for slavery in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses. God could have abolished slavery post-Exodus from Egypt. God does not abolish slavery. Therefore, we have to take into account that slavery is not an absolute evil categorically. And yet, what does God do? God puts restrictions on the way that a master is allowed to treat his slave. God puts restrictions and prohibitions on kidnapping. A man-stealer is to be put to death. If you kidnap someone else to make them a slave, you are to be tried and, if convicted, put to death. Now, how exactly that squares with what else we read in terms of when Israel was to make war against a city that was not one of the select cities in Canaan that God said to completely destroy, kill every living thing in those cities. When another city besides those was conquered, God said to put every man to the sword if the city had refused to surrender on the front end. If you have to take the city by force, put every man to the sword and take the women and the children to be your servants. Well, that's another way of saying they become your slaves. But even so, everything God says as far as how you treat slaves is in full effect. The American South did not rightly divide the word of truth. If they had shown even a quarter as much concern for God's honor in obeying how God said to treat slaves as they showed in protecting and defending their own honor, their own high sense of personal dignity, there would not have been a civil war. Now, it's interesting. Part of how Wilson gets into hot water is by thinking out loud and really trying to parse out what is correct, what is not correct. What does God's word say? What does it not say? What does what it says actually mean? And what does it mean that people ignore what God says in some areas and try to add to what he says in other areas and try to stretch the meaning of what he says in still other areas. Doug Wilson does all of this in a public way and he gets faulted for it. And I think that says more about the state of our society than it does about the condition of Doug Wilson's soul in the vast majority of cases. But Doug Wilson got in a lot of hot water, specifically with regards to Black and Tan and the book version of that that he co-wrote with Steve Wilkins years before, because Wilson takes the position that the Civil War was not only not necessary to bring an end to slavery, it was wrong. It was wrong that the Civil War happened and that the most radical abolitionists who had thrown out God's word 
as inerrant, sufficient, perfect, authoritative. The most radical abolitionists who had scoffed at sola scriptura in their pursuit of abolition for slaves in the South did far more harm. They, they responded to sin with sin. The invasion of the South by the North costing three-quarters of a million lives, 620,000, I believe it is, battlefield casualties. That was unnecessary and was wrong. Slavery, as it was practiced in the South, would have, with far less cost, not just in lives lost, but in social strife and turmoil and bad precedent, bad legal precedent, could have been accomplished through Reformation, through evangelical Christian Reformation. But there was an impatience on the part of abolitionists. And actually, here's the interesting backstory to what Wilson writes. I've listened to a panel discussion between John Piper and Doug Wilson, moderated by Joe Rigney at a Desiring God conference in 2013 right around the time that some people in broader society rediscovered Steve Wilkins and Doug Wilson's book on this topic, which then was no longer being published. After this controversy, they pulled it from their shelves, and then Doug Wilson repackaged just his essays without Steve Wilkins' essays. Wilkins took the blame for his having made some errors in his contributions. And Wilson, besides meeting with Piper and Rigney and some other gentlemen and some black brothers, African-American Christians who were concerned about Wilson having been invited to the Desiring God Conference by John Piper in light of this controversy, Wilson explains that the impetus for his and Wilkins' book was in the early 90s a growing sentiment among evangelical pro-life Christians in America that a civil war, another civil war, to bring an end to abortion would be justified. If we could bring an end to the slaughter, the wholesale slaughter, millions of unborn children slaughtered every year, tens of millions of unborn children slaughtered, murdered, with government sanction since Roe v. Wade, it would be justified. That would be a just war. God would be pleased with that. And Wilson writes for his part, and Wilkins writes for his part, this book on slavery and racism as a way of dealing with and confronting this sentiment that we should have another civil war to bring an end to abortion. And in order to be consistent, he has to say, if we don't believe that a civil war is justified to bring an end to abortion in America, how much less can we say that the first civil war to bring an end to slavery was justified? Which is worse, slavery or abortion? Which is worse, Joseph being murdered by his jealous brothers 
because he has a dream that they're all going to bow down to him. Or Joseph's brothers selling Joseph into slavery, where he's then later thrown in prison, where he then, in the end, ends up being second only to Pharaoh in Egypt and being a savior to his family and to the children of Israel, despite their 400 years of hard bondage. That's not the end of the story. After four centuries of being slaves in Egypt, the children of Israel are brought out by God through Moses and Aaron and brought into, after 40 years of hiatus in the desert, the promised land. Well, Wilson concludes very matter-of-factly, and I agree with him, that it would be better to be a slave than to be aborted. If I had to choose, I would rather be a slave than be aborted in my mother's womb. It is a worse evil that tens of millions of unborn children have been brutally murdered in their mother's wombs in this country. Innocent blood cries out to the Lord God Almighty who is holy and righteous and just and who sees all. The innocent blood of millions and tens of millions of unborn children cries out to God. And what will we say? That we should have a civil war? That we should have three quarters of a million Americans die like in the first civil war? Or would it be more? Would it be in the millions? Because now our population has grown. Our methods and means of war have advanced. Would it be better for us to have a civil war than to have abortion continue on and to try and deal with it through evangelical reformation? Through young people protesting, standing outside of abortion clinics, holding signs, trying to talk with mothers who are considering abortion, to plead with them to not murder their own children. Doug Wilson has the right of it, and his detractors are saying much more about themselves than they are about him when they try to throw stones on this issue. But James P. Berg gives us a glimpse into where these ways of handling the scriptures had their origin. You have both the North and the South in the Civil War reading the same Bible, praying to the same God, invoking God's help in slaughtering one another. What effect did that all have post-Civil War on the way that we still, to this day, handle the scriptures. Now, Mark A. Knoll points out at the end of the Civil War as a theological crisis that this would not have happened in a Roman Catholic majority country. The Roman Catholic Church said as much. James P. Byrd quotes Roman Catholic responses to this that the Roman Catholic Church would not have permitted this to rise and escalate to the level of being a civil war. And yet, that is largely the point. The civil war in America was an outgrowth of the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment. The ideas of the Enlightenment being in one strain that we have a right to protest unbiblical teaching 
and to form a new church body politic that is more faithful to God's word led directly to the founding of the United States of America. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Governments are instituted among men to preserve these rights, to protect these rights. You don't get that without the Protestant Reformation. You don't get that without the reformers having looked at Romans 13 and seen in it not just a responsibility to submit to the governing authorities, but also a responsibility on the part of the governing authorities to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. Governments are instituted among men to preserve these rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But Wilson, in Black and Tan, makes a very interesting observation when he says he agrees with another scholar that the Civil War in America actually was spurred on by the same forces, the same strains of thought and philosophy and religious sentiment, which drove the French Revolution, which drove the revolution in Russia that we know of as the Bolshevik Revolution. The American Civil War was a revolution. Was it a revolution on the part of radical abolitionists in the North against the original terms of the nation's founding, which made allowances for slavery as God's law given to Moses did, as the epistles in the New Testament did, with hopes for emancipation, eventual, gradual, ultimate, and yet keeping the big picture and not elevating one value to a place of supreme importance to the point that we ignore all other concerns, being holistic, all things considered. Do the cost benefit and don't just look at the benefit. Is it worth it? It's very interesting to think of what James P. Byrd is giving us here in the way of quotes and analysis as actually an American-style French Revolution, Bolshevik Revolution. On the part of the North, you have radical abolitionists beating war drums and saying, the Constitution be damned, the Bible be damned. We want emancipation for these slaves, and we want it now. What do we want? Abolition. When do we want it? Now. On the part of those in the South, there are persuasive arguments, or I would at least say arguments with merit, that they were in the South abiding by the original terms of the confederation of these states, the founding of the United States of America. And it was the North which was going back on the original deal and saying, oh, no, 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 no. Nope, you will do this. This is how it's going to be. And yet, looking at what happened, in, even looking at the quotes at the end of the Civil War, North and South, the most honest, genuine, I would say repentant Christians, North and South, recognized that the Civil War, whether you were fighting for the Union or the Confederacy, whether you were pro-slavery or abolitionist, 
in the extreme, the Civil War was God's providential judgment on America. And in no small part, you can say, it comes down to pride going before destruction and a haughty look before a fall. We became conceited. We became puffed up. We forgot God. And yet, today, even still, when we talk about these things, Mark A. Knoll and James P. Byrd are outliers in their treatment of the Civil War. We don't hear very many historians and political activists, politicians, academics, people in broader society, deal with the Civil War as a theological crisis. What was at heart here is our handling, our rightly dividing the word of truth. Yes, you can quote scripture, so can Satan. Now, what does it mean? Now, apply it faithfully and consistently, not just cherry-picking what you like and spitting out the seeds. Either abide by all that Jesus commanded, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, or leave well enough alone because you're mocking God and God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Well, that's just it. America did reap what it had sown. The wind was sown and we reaped the whirlwind. I would highly recommend you check out James P. Byrd's A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood. It will shake you up and it should because we think of this as being 150 years ago and we're so far removed. And yet what these men did, not just in fighting, I have a three generations removed great-grandfather who fought for the Union. I have a four generations removed great-grandfather who fought for the Confederacy. Their contribution to my reality involves a lot more than just the fact that they fought for the North or the South. It involves a lot more than just whether the Union was preserved and slavery was abolished. Their contribution was far more than just fighting the Civil War and winning or losing it. But their contribution to the way we treat God's word, the way we reference it, invoking God's wrath against our enemies, selectively sometimes pulling the verses which we believe men will affirm us like Pharisees for publicly reading on a street corner, all the while glossing over, skipping over, ignoring, avoiding other passages which are less popular but arguably more relevant where calls to repentance are concerned. The cautionary tale of the American South is that the American South saw the plank as being in the eye of radical abolitionists rather than perceiving a speck in the eye of the North and dealing with the plank in their own eye. The slaveholders and, oddly enough, the white, non-slave-owning citizens of the southern states that seceded were first and foremost chiefly concerned with their own honor. And insofar as they made 
pretense that they were concerned about God's honor, they undermined their claim by not attending to biblical justice consistently. If you want to make this claim that slavery is biblical and therefore mind your own business, abolitionists, you have to devote your energy and your attention to practicing this peculiar institution in a biblical way, and yet you didn't. And still today, the really radical abolitionists are still trying to liberate us from every facet of reality. When the American Medical Association puts out a press release, puts out a memo saying, we're going to take sex, take gender off of birth certificates because male and female are no longer meaningful distinctions and they exclude other possibilities. That's all about liberation. That is a continuation of Thomas Paine's rights of man. That is a continuation of the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. That is a continuation of man being the measure of all things. That is a continuation of Karl Marx. That's a continuation of this revolution, which is satanic. I would rather be a ruler in hell than a servant in heaven, is the big idea here, which drove those revolutions. And yet, we have to be very, very careful when we know the scriptures and we quote the scriptures to not fall into the same trap that Americans in the South fell into. Because it could be, if we don't take care, we find ourselves in the same position as Satan in the desert, as Jesus is there for 40 days and 40 nights after his baptism, at the outset of his public ministry. We quote scripture to Jesus, and Jesus corrects our misunderstanding. But do we have ears to hear? Do we have eyes to see? I'll leave you with this one final thought. It's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, according to James P. Byrd, at the tail end of a holy baptism of blood and fire, was likely not a Christian until Gettysburg. When he goes to Gettysburg and he sees all of these men, north and south, dead on the field, he suddenly has a realization of what Christ has done. And he says in that moment he truly loved Christ and other people who knew Lincoln claimed that Lincoln had a conversion in that moment on that day. He became a Christian. But this quote from Lincoln says, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. If that had been the sentiment, North and South, the Civil War would not have happened. If that were our concern today, we would not have this woke brand of Christianity trying to consume the church like a boa constrictor getting a hold of a small dog. Our view of God has gotten much smaller. Our view of ourselves has gotten much bigger. 
And we are like a little dog who is all bark, but do we have substance to our convictions, to our beliefs? Or when pricked is our first thought, God, help me. You got my back, right? Is our first thought to invoke God against our enemies because chiefly we, like the American South, are concerned with our honor. We honor ourselves all the while forgetting that pride goes before a fall and a haughty look before destruction. Or pride goes before destruction and a haughty look before a fall, rather. My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Do we actually believe that? We should endeavor to believe that. Check out James P. Byrd's book. Also check out the book by Mark A. Knoll. Also, Doug Wilson's Black and Tan. That's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.